Welcome to Brain of Vat. We are delighted to be joined by Mark Linson Meyer, who is a podcast host of one of the great podcasts out there in philosophy, The Partially Examined Life. So not only do you get two marks, but you get three hosts. And Mark also has a book out called Philosophy for Teens. Would you like to start with a thought experiment? Sure. I think a great way to get teens or any other folks that maybe haven't thought a lot about philosophy into self-examination is by talking about musical taste. That this is something that I've been lecturing people on since I was 17, since the idea being that maybe natively pre-philosophically, you might think everybody just has their own tastes. Everybody's taste is their own. Nothing really to say about it. If I respect you, I'll just respect that you like what you like and I'll like what I liked. So it seems like they're kind of like tastes in food that maybe those can be trained over time. There are things that you don't like as a child that you may grow to enjoy, but for the most part. To understand that you just have to understand biology, how do things really change? But with music, we have a much richer set of experiences to draw on about how we come to enjoy particular things. Maybe a friend is into a band, we get into that. Maybe some of the music we liked as kids doesn't age very well. As you listen to more music, you realize that there's more to offer out there. How the experience of listening changes as you learn more about a genre, things like that. So we all feel our way through life referring to these kinds of experiences, but with philosophy, you can try to make the process more explicit. So you can ask if beauty is just subjective, is it in the beholder, or whether it involves judgments that are referring to objective qualities in the thing, like the, the movement of a melody, counterpoint, the harmonies involved in various chords. These are the formal aspects. I might also be reacting to the prettiness of the singer's voice, the really well-engineered drum sound, the overtones of the instrument. Those would be the matter, the material aspects. But maybe more importantly for our taste, there, there are also social aspects, right? Does this music sound like other music I like? Is it seem like it's aimed at me and my demographic? What is its style? Do I like that style, that style of living? Is this music trying to be playful? Is it trying to be intense? Is it cheesy? Do I feel manipulated by it? Does it seem inauthentic in some ways? This is getting into ideological criticisms, right? Do you find the punk ethos to be something you agree with politically and so connect with emotionally or Maybe you think it's juvenile or stale or too nihilistic. There's all sorts of genres like that metal that have a definite, that uh, the, a kind of fashion that goes with it. We're all familiar with this dynamic regarding different genres. So that understanding urban music, right? Rap and R&B, it's not unrelated to feeling some connection to black culture. While country music has its own demographic, generational things, music from the 60s is related to the boomers. We old folks just, we can't get our heads around with whatever the young people are listening to at the time. But my claim is that even within a very narrow genre, like I grew up in the 80s on new wave, on post-punk. So you might have bands that sound very similar, even have very similar names like The Cure, The Church, The Cars, The Cults. And you think, oh, those are just all one thing. But no, each of these has its own unique personality, very much related to the personality, the ideas of the singer, and maybe the way, the main way to, to get it, to connect with a particular artist is just exposure, listening repeatedly, closely, listening till you find yourself humming the melodies, try to apply that to your life. Even if you don't dress metal, you maybe could have an inner metal head grow. It might help to find out what the artist's influences are, listen to some of that stuff, kind of get into where they're coming from, listening to some interviews, other personal details. Okay, so so why this is important philosophically, not only because you are maybe a more changeable person than you think, right? It's not just that you have taste, you can develop them, you can learn, 
you can understand other people that seem very strange to you. I don't, but it's also even applies just to ideas more generally, right? I was getting into the ideology of music. Well, think about the ideology involved in philosophical system. So Nietzsche argued that a philosopher's system is more a matter of someone's temperament than anything else. So the British moralists, he would make fun of, they're all just uptight bean counters. They're measurable units of utility. He had similar objections to Socrates with his nitpicking, his otherworldly bent, his absolutist bent. He's, he's brilliant, but ultimately destructive of our healthy relationship to our instincts. He is aspirants of Nietzsche himself. He described would have to be willing to both rigorously analyze and destroy in the Socratic way, but also be creative, artistic, and well-grounded in their human nature. The Marxists took that idea, said, you only do the kind of philosophy you do. You only like the kind of things you like because you're a member of the bourgeoisie, the leisure class, right? Those are the only people that would waste their time studying philosophy. And he really reduced every kind of preference to some sort of expression of your role in society. And you've got that kind of critique applied to art by folks like uh, Adorno, Marcuse going to the 20th century, most keenly by the 70s, Pierre Bourdieu, a social critique of the judgment of taste, saying explicitly that taste is just the way we distinguish ourselves socially. Just a marker to say, I am a person of distinction. I'm not like those other people. I'm proud of my own social class. All right, so that's probably enough to get us into how I think art and philosophy are related and maybe a way to start the process of somebody being interested in philosophy. Whereas if you just said, is the chair really there? That might be not the way to excite a lot of kids. Yeah. So it looks like a good introductory topic because art and taste and music are things everyone knows about. So we all experience it in our daily lives. And I think these debates often come up in common discussion. So I have a partner who loves listening to modern pop. And I just can't, I just can't listen to it. And I feel like the music I like to listen to, which is more like golden oldies, is better music. And he looks at my music or listens to my music and says, no, it's not. My music is better. That's antiquated. That's no good. And I say, well, in 20 years time, my music will still be around, but yours won't. It'll fade away. And he says the opposite. And it seems like we can have these debates and they matter to us. And philosophy could maybe perhaps not adjudicate, but certain philosophical theories will weigh in on one side of the issue or the other. Or just clarify, what exactly is it that you find so profound? I found my way into quote unquote, stupid pop music was to focus on the matter of it. That in fact, I remember as I've had bands for many years and I was putting out albums back in college and I think I'd given my cassette of one of my first bands to a friend and she would, what'd you think of it? Well, I like music that sounds good. She said, and I knew exactly what she meant because mine was home recorded as, as wonderful as I and brilliant as, as I thought the songwriting was, it did not have that sheen, which is always going to get more advanced, the more money, the more technological advancements I can make music as rich as what would have had to come out of multi-million dollar recording studio in the eighties. Now myself, save not having a very good acoustically good room. That always is a thing or just the quality of the instruments themselves that I don't pour $10,000 into my drum kit, but a lot of the elements we can make much more smooth now. So yes, probably the, the quantized and auto-tuned and otherwise polished music of the present is going to have certain objectively more appealing, smoother, at least 
qualities in the thing itself that you could point to and say, oh, this is the thing. And if you can just get a hold of that and just enjoy it on its level to say, yes, I like the way this bass drum is so powerful. It beats into my breast, even if I think there's nothing else really memorable about the song and nothing that distinguishes that song from a million other things that really have the same effect. So this is interesting. It seems like the different approaches we can have to evaluating a piece of art, one would be to say, well, there's some abstract set of criteria which we could use to determine whether something is good or bad. Monroe Beardsley wrote a book where he thought we could kind of come up with a framework that we could use to adjudicate paintings and music and sculpture. So he thought simplicity was one of those things that was going to be very important. And he thought you could say some art's just crap and some art is better than other art. What gets complicated for me is how do we adjudicate between different genres? So you sort of said, well, maybe there's something beautiful that you could find in pop music. So you could say, well, one of the things I prize is production quality. And if you listen to the new Nicki Minaj track, you can tell the production quality is exceptional. Someone else could say, no, what I really like is grimy music that feels authentic and real. So when I listen to Nirvana, I want to listen to the stuff that was made in one take that was recorded live. I don't want to hear the overproduced albums. This idea of it being better production just makes it soulless. And now it's hard to adjudicate between those things. And it's hard to adjudicate between someone who says, well, country music has this feeling and someone else says, well, R&B is this feeling. Is one better? Is it just a matter of saying, I like spicy, you like sour? So I think the idea of, again, not just even different genres, but different approaches by particular artists in what are what's ostensibly the same genre, which can occlude lots of differences between them, or what are they trying to do? And it, it shouldn't come entirely down to what is the artist's intention, and you have to interview the artist, as I do on my music podcast, which I've been doing since 2016, in parallel to the philosophy one. It's not all up to them to adjudicate, but if you're judging by completely foreign standards, you're probably missing something. I mean, the basic lesson here that I have, which very much relates to what Jason was saying about relating to his partner, this is where this really comes. Your loved ones, your friends like things that are so different than you and they hate what you like, then that seems like an interpersonal problem that like, do we even understand each other as people? And I'm not always good at when I'm in this kind of situation of convincing the other person that they should also try to expand their tastes to include mine. But at least I feel like it is within my control to try to get what they are getting, to see what they are seeing in it. That it's like, rather than saying it's using the eye of the beholder, say it's a chemical reaction between the art and the spectator. And if that produces pleasure, then that's objectively something that can be produced by that thing. And again, for the dumbest kind of pop music, it could just be that there are formulas like pressing our pleasure center and that anybody, especially young, impressionable people who are exposed to this dreck will be lit up. And it's only when they listen to lots of other music and they realize, wow, what I was so impressed with before, this is actually a very rudimentary and manipulative kind of thing. And now I'm so much more sophisticated and can get higher, greater pleasures, the, the, saying that these are the pleasures of the pig. As, as John Stuart Mill would say, that the only competent judge is somebody that has experienced both the pleasures of the pig and the pleasures of the fully rational human. But of course, that's inherently problematic because how piggish do you have to be, right? Does the way that the pig experiences the pleasures of the pig, is that anything like what the haughty philosopher who deigns to enjoy the stupid dance music, are they really getting the same thing out of it? That everybody has got their own 
journey that they've gone through to get where they are. And that's never exactly reproducible by somebody else. So you sort of have to find your own way to get there. Yeah. So I like this idea of the value, maybe not the value or part of the value of music is in the chemical reaction between the music and the listener. And obviously the artist who produces the music. So when you think about it that way, it could be that the way to resolve this interpersonal problem between you and another who has different music tastes. One way is, as you suggest, that you really do a deep dive into their type of music and try to understand their type of music. But the way I try to resolve it is to try to understand what they love about it, which is slightly different because it's not that I have to understand the music. It's just that I have to ask them, so what do you like about this? And I don't have to agree that the thing that they like about it is likable. I can still think it's Drek, but I can appreciate that they like it and then perhaps take them to a music concert where there is that property present. Yeah, I like that because in the abstract, I mean, you mentioned, what have you mentioned? Authenticity and something feeling very gritty. And of course, somebody who really likes John Coltrane might say the exact same thing, but those are so different in different sonic universes. So that might be, I remember hearing Flea of the Red Hot Chili Peppers really likes John Coltrane. And you might say, oh, I, that's so unexpected, but there might be ideological things that you can carry over and say, hey, I know you're really into punk. You really should be into metal because metal has a similar sort of very strict anti-beauty aesthetic to it. And you just need to immerse yourself, but getting it in the abstract first, I think that's a great step certainly, but there's no, right. And that's maybe enough for appreciating. Like I appreciate why you are a metalhead. I'm not going to put in the time. I personally have not put in the time to become a metalhead. I can go so far as sixties metal and listening to a lot of deep purple and things like that, but, and things on the edge of what Zeppelin and Def Leppard for a little more modern, but still they're going to be major things unless I'm interviewing a particular artist and really just want to say, I don't have time to school myself on everything they've ever loved. I'm just going to listen to their albums and hopefully enough time that I get something out of it and that some of it's going on in my head and I just don't just hate myself and hate my world for that period of time. So it seems like you've got a rubric for persuading someone to expand their taste or to say, if you like this thing, this is adjacent and it's going to have some shared features and some other features, give it a try. And it might be that they say, you know what, actually I didn't see that connection before. Now that I see it, I can enjoy it and they can keep expanding their tastes. I wonder if one could be expanding their taste into things that are just bad. So you could learn to appreciate something that's just crap. And it might be that there is some objective standard about what is actually good in the world. Maybe it's, a, as you say, there's this alchemy. So maybe you have to almost adopt a certain pose to enjoy a certain kind of music. So I think if you're trying to persuade someone who likes classical music to enjoy metal, they might treat it like classical music. So they'll pick up all the kinds of technique things that are done. So that's why you have things like Symphony and Metallica and why there can be a connection between people that like that kind of music and, and will say, I can appreciate the form of this and the, the dexterity in it. But that might be the wrong way to appreciate it. And the right way to appreciate symphonic music might be to go and sit in a big opera hall and watch that. And the right way to enjoy a metal gig is to stand up in front wearing your Slipknot t-shirt, bouncing your head around with a whole bunch of other people and losing yourself and feeling the sort of crowd. So I took Jason to an open air music festival a couple of years ago. And I think he very much tried to find things to appreciate because I think he thought this music is terrible and Mark must have bad taste. But there was something that he liked, which was the sense of going, 
there's just thousands of people that are having this wonderful time together and they almost act as one unit. And that's a beautiful thing to watch, this sort of sea of enchanted people, even if the music's not my taste. I mean, it might be trying to, you're eating a bad meal and you sort of say, well, I like the raisins, but everything else is terrible and you find the nice thing in it. I don't know. I think it's a hard topic for me. It's not obvious that we can say there's an objective standard or obvious that people have a, a bad taste. It seems like we can persuade people, but I wonder what we're persuading them of. And if it's the kind of thing that we do in philosophy as well, say, well, if you accept premise A, you have to accept the conclusion that follows. And so if you like punk music, well, you have to love Joy Division because there's a stream that gets you there. Yeah, there are a lot of elements to what you just said there. One thing initially, in terms of getting into music that is crap, I think via the genre is the way to do it. Is So I recall thinking that jazz, at least a certain kind of jazz, was just cheesy. This ta 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 Like, I don't want it. That doesn't move me. But as then I got very into Miles Davis and John Coltrane, sort of inarguably geniuses of their genre, then after that, like, okay, well, I've been around this a while. So now if I just hear some idiot going, ta, 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 like I'll at least enjoy it because I'm used to it. And now I'm in that world. And I think if somebody presents with a, with some genre you hate and like, this is the cr most critically acclaimed type of that thing, probably you as a smart person, there's a way for you to get into it, right? That this person had ideas that they're expressing that you can, even if you disagree with them, right? They're being very nihilistic about the world, whatever it is that you think is actually, I don't like that philosophy, but you can respect that it is a philosophy. You can get a hold of it. At least something to explore about the analogy between art and philosophy is that I recall Peter Gabriel really opened my eyes to it. So he would, he has like a song called The Intruder that is very dark. And it's a, from the point of view of somebody who's breaking into your house. And it's much better than it sounds from that voice that I just did. But he would do these basically theater pieces and you could enjoy them, even though you don't sign on to the perspective, the philosophy of the narrator of the song. They're just ways of, wow, it actually feels good to be dark in this way, to put myself in the, in the situation imaginatively. Whereas a philosophy that is probably trying to argue that not only is this aesthetically a fun way to play act for a little bit, but that it is true, that it is something you need to spend a lot of goddamn time with. Sorry, <laughs> right? If you want to really get into Derrida, he's written a lot of books. They're all very difficult. They take a lot of time. It's a major time commitment. It's a, basically a life choice to become a fan of Derrida in a way that merely listening to an album, again, maybe to become a super metalhead, to become a deadhead, you know, they're equivalents in the music world. But yeah, you might ask yourself, is this crap because of ideology? Is this something that is actually making me a, in the case of philosophy, a poorer thinker? It seems like there's something that people, you know, any band or whatever artist that has fans that connect with them, something good about them. In philosophy, the parallel thing is that there's always something true lurking in there. It just might be so objectivism. I think it, it's a common philosophy for somebody in college. So I, ran, I had a, an objectivist on my hall in the dorm in college and got me to read these books. And, and yeah, you can, you should be able to see why that would be appealing just like the dumbest pop music is appealing to impressionable young people. Why that sense of independence from authority and I want to pay attention to my own judgment. It's almost more so in, I did make myself sit through an audiobook of the entire Fountainhead as an adult because I felt like I need to understand this something that a lot of people are into. Again, there must be something to it. And yeah, I get, even as I see 
so much that I find more objectionable about the, the, just the philosophical problems with the ideas and the deeply emotionally flawed character of somebody who I'm so independent, I'm doing my own thing, like not acknowledging the standing on the shoulders of giants and our basic interconnectedness and our duties toward other human beings and thinking that it is a virtue to be selfish. There's so much to object to there, so much that's just foolish in that particular brand of libertarianism, that education into like what Kant actually said instead of the caricature that she draws of him. But again, that's just an example. There aren't so many philosophers that have made it through history and maybe the objectivism will just be dead in a hundred years. And there are probably equivalent things from past ages that didn't make it to us. But yeah, so I'm not a Christian, but if you want to get into a lot of historical philosophy, I'm reading Nino, a, a, one of the most prominent Neoplatonists of the, of the Renaissance right now. And you better be okay putting on that, that Christian to the point of the angelic mind and the world soul and the different layers in which the perfect platonic ideas reach into material things and why lust is not really a part of love and just these wacky things that I don't agree with ideologically, but I can try them on in the same way as that Peter Gabriel song and find something that is sensible in the way that, oh, this is actually a pretty insightful take on moral psychology because he's acting on the same data of observing people as we are, even though I think that he's the victim of some terrible ideology that is prejudicing his overall thesis going into it. Yeah, I think the objectivism and Randian analogy is really good because I think m both Mark and I have strong libertarian sympathies, mm -hmm. but some of the stuff in Rand is just junk. So it's the moral egoism, the ethical egoism. So moral egoism is the view that an action is right just in case it benefits you. That just seems wrong, right? And ethical egoism, the view that everyone is just inherently selfish seems incorrect and there's some crazy metaphysics stuff in there and there's some crazy inferences between these different th theses to economic theses it, the inferences are weird the premises are weird but there's something in there that's attractive so there's something about this notion of freedom that matters that that seems to be plausible and so one could extract the bits of theories that you like and discard the rest Mark calls it the raisins view. So you just extract the raisin. And I think that's what Mark has done personally, but there are problems with it, which is if you mix shit and ice cream together, you don't get some, something nice and something bad. You just get something bad. So there are questions around how polluted a theory can be or a piece of music can be before there's nothing left of the good bits. I think what Jason's hinting at is that you get some people in philosophy will say, all right, let's work out what the bits of the theories are that work. And we'll try and rescue that stuff and you can cobble together something. And in some cases it's going to look like an incoherent Frankenstein's monster. And in some cases you might say, okay, these principles work. So for example, applied ethicists will say, look, we don't know what the grand moral theory is, but we've got this toolbox of things. So we think generally your theory shouldn't be endorsing suffering. So if the action itself is causing suffering, you should avoid it. We should try and respect autonomy. We should care about a whole bunch of different kinds of values. You should be kind. So you're starting to borrow from consequentialist theories, from deontological theories, from virtue ethics. You could think of it as a series of hurdles that have to be crossed in the way that Derek Parfit does it in his, in his last book, tries to kind of read the theories alongside each other. Jason just says, nah, man. The correct answer is utilitarianism. So it's not like he's a religious scholar in the sense that someone says, I'm a fundamentalist about my text. 
and I believe it regardless of the bad bits. He thinks utilitarianism just is the best theory. And he has a particular sophisticated view of that theory and has made various alterations along the way. So there's a different kind of craftsmanship that goes into building that theory, but it's all consequentialists in leaning. So yeah, I mean, it's, I think there's a tension that we have in, in terms of picking our positions and picking our tastes. I mean, the advantage of being able to listen to two different genres of music and say, I don't like this, I like this, and then mix them together is that sometimes you get beautiful things. So I think about jazz fusion, you have someone like Miles Davis, who, as you say, is like an absolute genius, listening to someone like Jimi Hendrix and going, wow, there's amazing stuff here, but I'm not a, I'm not a rocker, but I wonder if I can use some of this. And then he goes and does things like Bitches Brute. And it's like changes jazz music. And so having these new elements come in can be amazing. You can have people, I think, I, I personally have a skepticism about mm, the music of now. I think a lot of it sounds crap, except for the stuff that sounds like music from 20 years ago. So <laughs> Surprise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, so like, I love this sort of retro wave synth stuff that sounds like the soundtrack to Stranger Things. Maybe it's a nostalgia factor. Maybe I go like, ah, oh, that reminds me of my youth and that's why I resonate with it. I turn on the radio and I just think this is abysmal. One of the views about why do old people not like new music is they were just fuddy-duddies and we have a sort of view in favor of what we grew up with, but I don't feel that way about all art forms. So I can look at stuff that's produced on television and say, this is so much better than the things of my youth, that the production quality is incredible, that the length of the storytelling is impressive. I think certain art forms go through better and worse periods. I think about some of the movies I grew up with and I think they were better in the 70s, but I think that the television shows of the 2010s are better than the stuff of the 90s. And that makes me think that I'm not just a fuddy-duddy, but I could be wrong. And it, I find it hard to adjudicate. It seems like the one method is, as you say, this act of persuasion. If you say, if you like this thing, you should probably also like this thing and you can make recommendations. And if you think about it, that's how these taste generators work. Spotify goes, you like this thing? I'm going to serve you up other stuff that people that listen to that thing like. YouTube's going to do the same. Netflix is going to do the same. It takes this idea of being persuaded by tastes in a certain direction. I'm interested... Given that you've interfaced with philosophy in these different ways, running a range of different podcasts and writing, what are the things that you've enjoyed most about the podcasting experience, the kinds of conversations that you've had and the methods that you've used on your show? Good question. I mean, I feel like we're always reinventing the format and some of my co-hosts complain that I over-engineer things because I'm constantly like, is each of us talking the right amount? Are we spending too much time on the overview versus the text? I want to make sure that we're allowing new people to jump in anywhere, even though it's very difficult at this point with 13 years behind us, we're not going to re-explain the basics of Kant every time we bring up the name Kant. But we sort of have to at least a little bit. Yeah. So one of my co-hosts would prefer that we just never have guests again, because what works about the show is the chemistry between the four of us. And it just, it's throwing an unknown in to have a new person, but I like that. So that's one of the reasons I started the separate pop culture podcast. It was actually the idea of one of the other guys, but then nobody else wanted to jump over with me. So I found some different co-hosts. It's called pretty much pop, a culture podcast and ran it with those co-hosts for a couple of years. Now they're not even so much involved. So I, I have an ad hoc group of panelists every single time to talk about, you know, the Jurassic Park franchise, but these things that supposedly would be a bigger draw than another episode on Sartre. As a matter of publicity, it happens that 
it's a subsection of my philosophy listeners that will then want to see what I and my friends think about these various movies and music genres and things like that. But at least theoretically, I'm bringing in new voices all the time. I try not to get more than one new person on at a time, but I really like exploring those different dynamics and what makes for a good guest. It's surprising. It, you've had mostly academics on your show. And I find when we have academics on our show, they often don't get that it is a discussion show, that it is a cooperative reading show. Like some of the people we have an affiliation with informal affiliation, although they pay us for advertising them. So I guess with St. John's College in Annapolis in New Mexico, so that's a, it's a purely discussion-based program where the professors do not lecture. They just sit and have the discussion with you. So when we get somebody who works there on the show with us, they totally know how to do what we do. Whereas if we get a normal professor and we're talking about that person's book, I don't want to hear Peter Singer say the exactly the same thing he said in 40 other places. That is boring to him. It's boring to me because I have just listened to him on YouTube say those same things five other times. So we will try to jump in and like have an actual conversation. Like, okay, here's this sentence from this book. And so I do really like getting these major minds. We've had some really wonderful guests like that over the years to respond very directly. David Chalmers that I know you've had, he just wrote this bizarre book of building on Carnap's Alfbau project a number of years ago. So we had him talking about that. And it was just talk about getting into the mind of just a very strange and brilliant person who's just gone off in his own direction very far. Like that is exactly like studying Miles Davis or getting Miles Davis to act. Actually, I think Miles Davis himself would be completely irascible. And I found some of the musicians that I get in, some of them are very verbal and open to self-analysis. But for instance, I just put up one with one of the surviving Ramones who just seemed completely hostile to this overthinking approach that I have to analyzing music. And so it was kind of a comedy, but even that I enjoy. So there's a good and a bad side for everything. They say it's bad to meet your idols. And that has happened in some cases, both with philosophers or we had a sci-fi author that I really enjoyed a lot of his stuff. But when we actually got him on, he had such a contempt for philosophy, given that he was on a philosophy podcast, that it was rather hard. I would rather interpret him through my own lens and get the brilliant philosophical ideas that I was getting at it rather than hear him say ignorant things about Plato that he has clearly not read enough of to have a good opinion about. I have a new thing that I'm really enjoying just because it's new called philosophy versus improv. I've been doing it for about a year where I just, I had been listening to some improv comedy podcasts. This hello from the magic tavern is one of them that has like basically a people in Narnia or Lord of the Rings, but having a talk show. So it's all very like mundane. What's it like to be a troll kind of thing. And, but it's comedians from the Chicago improv scene. And there's just this huge batch of really smart people. I'm like, how, I wish I had done that. I wish I had given some of my youth to learning that instead of what I learned or in addition to. So I got one of the folks associated with that. Bill Arnett had been on a number of their episodes. And so he and I, it's like co-tutoring that he comes in with an improv point to teach me. I have a basic philosophy point to teach him. He gets to be a fresh set of ears so that I'm really modest in terms of like, if I'm going to explain what ontology is, like that's going to be the whole goal. We're going to talk for an hour and we're going to get at least that concept out of what an ontology is and what kinds of, why you could, why you would care about this term, as opposed to just jumping in and talking about the details of Aristotle's ontology. So that's been a great learning experience. We've gotten 
you're going to be guests on it, apparently. If, if we have a tentative commitment from the two of you, having guests from the philosophy and from the comedy worlds or other entertainment areas to come with us on that. So yeah, that's my four podcasts, Philosophy versus Improv, Nakedly Examined Music is the long running music one, pretty much pop and the Partially Examined Life. And I guess I enjoy whatever the newest thing is the most that I love working my way through the history of philosophy. And I love my co-hosts on that show, but it's a 13 year relationship. Imagine how you guys would be clawing at each other's throats after 13 years of doing this. Oh my God. Yeah. Well, Mark's a Kantian and as you can hear, I'm a utilitarian. So after 13, <laughs> 13 years, all the ethics goes out the window. We just, oh, you're, you're saying that Kantian thing again. Oh my God. <laughs> Luckily, after the after doing that for a couple of years, people just get bored of saying that same thing. So we kind of get different beefs, different bones to pick that still can come out periodically. But you know, hopefully, everybody's still on their intellectual journey, so you don't feel like so personally connected to arguing the utilitarian position every time it comes up after a couple of years because you'll just be bored of it. Yeah, that's true. I think what's interesting about listening to you speak is that it sounds like your focus is more on the feeling of philosophy rather than the pure ideas abstracted from people's lives. So you're trying to get a sense of what this theory means to people, how it's applied to their lives, how it features in the author's life, how it features historically, rather than abstracting the concept out of all that context and just discussing it in a purely philosophical way as some analytic philosophers do. So that's sort of the goal of many analytic philosophers is just to abstract the theory and the moment any context is mentioned, those philosophers will say, well, that's irrelevant. What I care about is whether this theory is true or false, not how it's been applied, not where it's practiced, not who practiced it, not how it has mattered to people. All I care about is this abstract theory and I can laden it with jargon, I can laden, laden it with terminology, so long as the perfectly rational soul can understand it and that it is objectively true rather than whether it's pragmatic or feels good or matters to people. So one thing we have not brought up here in terms of distinctions between cultures of philosophy or feeling is the obvious thing from politics now, which is racial dynamics and things like that. And so when I say what I'm about to say, I'm perfectly aware of how this sounds, but the, I have this idea from what I described with the aesthetics lecture that we started out with that any of us as human beings is capable of ranging over the whole range of human experience virtually such that analytic position that's actually one that i enjoy exploring so it's not that i will cut off the analytic philosopher and say oh it is relevant after all we have to we can't talk about that political theory unless you talk about how it's been applied over the years i love talking about things in the abstract the abstract is one of my favorite places to be. I, I guess I deny that distinction between it's certainly not just the feel of what various philosophies are i have described it that way sometimes, right? That what makes it continually interesting to me in a way that it really didn't when I was an undergrad searching for the truth. Like I want to find out what my position is. Now, like if you ask me, like, are you more of a utilitarian or a Kantian? I don't know, who cares? I mean, like, I don't, I'm not gonna get stopped on the street and like, I have to decide this thing right now, but I, well, I guess I'm more of a human. If we need to put things in those, perspectives that I am an anti-realist regarding the meta ethics. And so that puts things in perspective when it comes to the actual ethics. Yes, I have strong opinions, but I don't think ultimately those are based much more on the considered uh, the digested versions of my, the sentiments that I came with, the theory of moral sentiments sort of 
sort of Scottish point of view. I know that was going somewhere. Ask another question. So, I mean, I share with you this lust for finding out lots of different things and being exhilarated by the new. I mean, people often ask me, what's your favorite episode of the show? And it's always the one we just recorded. I'm so <laughs> excited by the new. And I think there's this interesting art in being able to talk to people with different modes who have different positions. So most of our guests are analytic philosophers and we have this massive variety in terms of things that we discuss with them. And occasionally we splash out and we have someone who's not an academic philosopher, but is doing something philosophically interesting. So we just had Lionel Shriver on to talk about suicide in our latest book. And there's all sorts of philosophical content in there. Is it immoral to kill yourself? What's the value of life? Would it be good to be immortal? Those sort of fundamental philosophical questions and then being able to see them played out in literature is an interesting thing. We'll have on someone like Travis Timmerman, who's a professional philosopher, talk about pop culture stuff. So we'll talk about Squid Game or we'll talk about Severance. And being able to do that play is a lot of fun. We had on Roger Ballin, who's a very famous photographer, and being able to talk about art with an artist is interesting because they can describe their process and the effect of the work. Often the stuff that art critics think are important, they don't. And I'm sure you found that when talking to musicians, that in some senses it can destroy your conception of them, that you feel maybe I shouldn't meet my idols. But in some ways you get this unique insight into what they're doing and you get to tell them something different. The fact that you're approaching it with the lens of philosophy means that you have this particular insight that some of them might delight in. Say, wow, I never thought about that with my music. And I like that we get to play this alchemy game, even just when talking to academic philosophers. When I talk to someone who specializes in philosophy of religion, and then we talk to someone who's into moral philosophy, being able to cross-pollinate that stuff often creates new things. And I'm, I wonder if you find that on your show as well, that having this variety of voices that you're not doing on your own, that you're doing with others in a variety of different areas is what sparks the new insights. Yes. And having repeated conversations, like if you guys talk for long enough and you just remain thoroughly, solely, I'm a utilitarian, I'm a Kantian, I would be very surprised by that. Like that other people's views just drip onto you. You begin to see the point as they bring it up in more and more context. It might just seem absolutely bizarre that I was, I knew Wes Allen, my co-host in graduate school, and he came in thinking that Kant was the answer. And I felt like, wait, Kant got immediately superseded by all these phenomenologists and all these later people. Why would you think possibly that a distinction between the thing in itself and appearance, these basic Kantian things, that that is the answer to anything. That is a historical relic. But over time and reading Scheller and uh, all these various other idealists and things with him, I begin to see more of the point. This cross-pollination thing is making me think of, I should explain a little more why I was saying that for folks that don't get the reference of why this, I can see all, I can visit the minds. Like this is according to many feminist theorists or theorists of uh, critical race theory, a typical white male dominance colonist sort of point of view. We just read Donna Haraway, a feminist philosopher of science who is maddening. I did not enjoy reading her work at all. I think she's very interesting, but man, I don't want to read more of that, who talked a lot about these hybrids and the way that in, in that lingo, Bruno Latour is another person we read in this area of hybrids between things and ideas and using that to talk about technological innovations and how those affect the political and how really the political is not even separable 
from the technological. They go hand in hand that this dystopia of misinformation and division that we have is a direct result, is part and parcel of the internet and the way that we fashion information technologies. All that is is fascinating to me. Um, I'm glad I don't have to live only in that world and that I can then turn back and do a close reading of Hegel on the next day. And all the better if I can actually hook them up and talk about, oh yeah, well, Hegel's master slave had feminist implications and that's why I'll draw the lines of connection between the two. Those are all great. So yeah, there is something about the mood, the mode that allows this project to have the longevity that it has. Because if we're, if we feel like, ah, I just don't, you could never just get tired of philosophy. I feel like, I mean, maybe by the time I was done with graduate school, I was tired of philosophy. I didn't read any philosophy for years. So it was coming back, finished that in the year 2000. And we started this up in 2009. So that's how long that I rediscovered science fiction. I rediscovered like you could read regular books by right. I read a bunch of Dickens. We could, you could read things that as a graduate student, you just had no time for in your life. And so that is why I've, even with this, I don't see necessarily turning to the pop culture stuff, as you were saying, was just a kind of play. Oh, it's great to be able to play with Severance and with a Squid Game. That I bring the same philosophy brain. It's just, I realize that of course, right, I do philosophy as a leisure time activity. Yes, it's my job. I get a good chunk of my income from the podcast, but I didn't start it that way. I did it because I wanted this back in my life. I wanted this flavor. I wanted to think about these things. And of course, just like John Stuart Mill was saying, we have the pleasures of the brain down to the pleasures of the pig and all sorts of, of course, that's, it's not a single scale. And so there's needs that watching stranger things or squid game or whatever fulfill and being able to interrogate yourself as to why do I like this? Why am I sitting through season five of this thing that I should have given up with after an hour? And being able to interrogate yourself in all your sort of different levels of existence, of levels of thought, and make those connect together in interesting ways. Yeah. So it's all one project to me, frankly. So I'm curious why you think that it's valuable to explore the ideas of others. So one way of doing philosophy is kind of to exist in a vacuum. So it's to... Mm -hmm. Think about, as I was saying, ideas in the abstract, but the other is to refer to historical figures and to refer to their works and to read them very closely. You mentioned your reading group where you'll take a sentence and have a discussion on that sentence. I'm curious whether you think that's the best way to do philosophy or whether you think there's another way that's as good or could be as good or whether it's just different approaches and they're equally fine. I think it depends where you are in your life and what you're trying to do. I recall when I was in college and was reading philosophy, I would, in a notebook, just use something that I'd read as an excuse to go off on some few paragraphs worth of my own thinking. And this is, use it as a springboard. And that is something I was trying to rediscover with the partially examined life of don't get too caught up that there is something in the scholar's mindset that is pretty screwed up. And you need to leave room. It doesn't even matter ultimately, am I giving a scholarly, giving an accurate interpretation of this? It's what it does in your life, right? It, it's, and that is the way that I think when I'm teaching, that is the way that I think when I'm advising my people that I'm just the audience of the podcast, I hope that however shallowly 
or deeply they get into it, it matters what they take out of it. At the same time, yes, by definition, I don't leave a lot of space for myself to like think of my own. I'm, I'm less close to writing a book of original philosophy now than I ever was in my life. I'm much more likely to do what I was calling tech transfer, this helping others. Maybe this is if you can't do teach kind of thing. And I've frankly even gotten to that point with music that when I was young, I wrote songs all the time and I kind of got out of my years of angst and resolved my difficulties with my love life and basically got on track. And so too many times a new song will just seem re redundant of some sentiment that I expressed in the past, maybe not as vivid as expressed in the past. Every once in a while, you can write a, a song about being an old crotchety person and having ennui, like that's fine, but don't write 10 of those songs. Nobody wants to hear that. So having sort of given up on my initial composition school days of well, now I'm going to write a full symphony. Now I'm going to introduce, I mean, there's always new things to explore in terms of the technology or the orchestration or do the Paul Simon or what Peter Gable, get, get foreign influence, work with different musicians from around the world. At this point, I am much more of a spectator and do like getting into other people's work. And I guess that's how I feel about philosophy as well. At some point I might just say, ah, enough. I'm feeling overwhelmed. I must stop all the podcasts for three months while I just record a new album and write a book that's actually original. In some ways, I feel like uh, the corollary to this is that young people tend to be the most prolific, but are they the really the ones that should be the most prolific? Do they actually have the most to say? Whereas Kant didn't start to churn out his good stuff until what? He was 50, 60 years old. So... Maybe that is the way to go. I don't know. So I changed my mind regarding your question on a daily basis. And I don't think it's just, oh, whatever way you do it, that's good. And I don't want people to take my overall aesthetics lecture as just be tolerant of everybody. Everybody has an opinion. They're all kind of the same. No, because these are about concrete relationships you have to people, to ideas, to aesthetic techniques, etc., And just saying, Oh, whatever you like is so that is a way of denying that any of this is actually important. You actually have to form the relationships. You have to develop these ideas, be able to articulate the philosophical ideas with your own mouth in order to earn the right to say something. So you mentioned that one of the shows that you work on is philosophy versus improv. And I'm really keen to talk a bit about the connection between philosophy and comedy. So it seems that comedy relies on some of the methods that philosophers use. So you've got to be very brief in the way that you get out your idea. You think about someone like Jimmy Carr delivering these one-liners. There's a logical game that's played that makes those things work. Think about how there's, a, there's this great special with Jerry Seinfeld and Louis C.K. called Talking Comedy, where they play out the different things that make a joke work. And there's a reflection about the, the timing that you use. And then there's all these interesting ethical issues around, well, are there certain kinds of jokes that are wrong to tell that might be offensive that involve subject matter that's that's dark or disturbing? Are there limits on the kinds of jokes that you could tell? I think comedy's gone through a bit of a dark period lately. I think people are terrified of telling jokes. You might get beaten up on stage. It's happened to two comics very recently getting beaten up. So I wondered if you'd thought about some of the philosophical issues in comedy. Yes, and have done particular pop episodes on some of the abstract concepts there. We we're sort of looking at prepping one on the idea of too soon that a Gilbert Gottfried just died not that long ago. And he, one of his most famous Latter-day things was making the first 9-11 joke 
after like on 912 or something that was considered an immensely poor taste but this is there's some principle the ethos of extreme comedy that you should just be able to tell the truth or that there's always a way to make light of a situation gallows humor right is the best actually in the gallows if i were in the gallows i would absolutely making be making jokes all the way to the gallows because like that is the way that i would cope with things that is not the way everybody copes with things. Probably most of those comedians, their wives, for instance. I know that I can't just tell any kind of joke around my family that there are certain things that are considered a little disrespectful, for instance, and situations that I can't, could or have in fact ruined by trying to make a joke out of it at that moment in a way that I felt like was perfectly healthy. So yes, I have definitely thought about the uh, basic theories of comedy and we did one on Henri Bergson where he just thought basically robots are the funniest damn thing. Anything that is a mechanical, that it's sort of a facsimile of the human, but moves in a way that doesn't really make sense. And so you think of all the Monty Python parodies of upright military and clergy and all that, like that is poking fun at the the way that we do not react in a very flexible way in the way we should to new information coming in, to be fully human, to not be mechanical is to, I'm going to say, to not have a philosophy, to not be a Kantian, a utilitarian, much less a humorless Marxist or an objectivist, blah. I don't want to be an isist, an ist of any sort because that would be, oh, so I guess I'm an existentialist. Goddamn. That, because that's the theory that we have no deep-rooted human nature. And so, of course, Simone de Beauvoir has a wonderful scale that I like to spell out on of the ways in which you could make mistakes. That if you're the serious man, that's, I mean, the sub-man who doesn't even think about anything, that's the worst. But the serious man who says, this ideology is bigger than me and I will yield to its wisdom, whether you're a super Christian or super patriot or Marxist or anything else. That's, but then there are other ways beyond that, that maybe I'm too much the adventurer that I will put this time and energy into something, but then maybe the next day I'll whimsically turn it to something else. And that's not a very responsible way to be, especially if it involves human relationships and being a Don Juan, turning all your passion from one person to another, regardless of their feelings. That was all just came out of this question about comedy. Uh, yeah, you'd have to get more specific. But how, what do you want to talk about with comedy? So that Gilbert Godfrey joke, when he tells the 9-11 joke, he gets booed. And he says, okay, I'm sorry. And he starts telling the joke, the aristocrats. Mm -hmm. Or that if you'd like to do your own rendition of the aristocrats. Oh, no, I would not like to do my own version of the aristocrats on this. <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm not. Comedy is another one of those areas that like, I really wanted to be a stand-up comedian when I was like seven. And I really liked Bill Cosby and Steve Martin. And my dad would give me tapes that had the dirty parts taken out so that I could listen to it at age seven until I would just go and listen to the LP and then I would hear all the dirty parts. But anyway, it was a, very much a scale. But no, I have not given enough of my life to actually being a good comedian so that making merely making quips in the context, it's situation comedies where the situation is we're reading Heidegger. Oh, I can make a little quip about Heidegger. That's the kind of thing I'm comfortable doing, not actually going off on a 20 minute foul rant, giving the aristocrats joke.